In the name of Jesus Christ, our gate to heaven, to eternal life, and our friend as we journey along that path. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, the, the saying is attributed to everyone from George Washington and Mao Zedong to Vince Lombardi and James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. The best defense is a good offense. Obviously, it's attributed by people when they first heard it to that source. Those who happen to watch Star Trek remember Captain James T. Kirk saying, the best defense is a good offense, and I'm about to offend those Klingons. If you stop and think about it a moment, it works. It makes sense. It makes sense in war. It makes sense in sports. If you're not able to stop your opponent, then keep him busy trying to stop you. Politicians also use it. There, too, it makes sense. If you can't defend your positions, if you can't defend your record, attack your opponents. Make him defend his. Our society today has, has put a little different twist on it. They've changed the accent from offense to offense. And they've used it to distract, and they use it effectively, to distract from problems that they have, that they don't want to answer. They don't want to have to explain how or why they did something that's not working. So what they have done, and are very good at doing, is creating offense, even where none exists, or bringing actual offense into people's lives so that everybody is so busy talking about, worrying about, dealing with this supposed or real offense that they don't think about the other problems in their lives. Human beings have this tendency, don't we, to be all about the most present danger, the thing that threatens us most imminently. So, for example, if you're camping with your family and you're on a walk and your children are there, you're not going to talk to your child about how to use a camp axe safely if there's a grizzly bear charging you. And it's the same with everybody in life. Those that are trying to hide what they've done bring some crazy thing into our lives and it sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Nobody talks about these problems when we have, for example, men pretending to be women doing lewd things in front of our children. That's the most pressing danger. That's what we're all about. Christians need to recognize the hand of Satan in all this. And I'm not talking about just the perversion that's fairly obvious, but the master plan, the cleverness of what Satan is doing to us. See, Satan, it, the devil is a master of distraction. We need to understand that about him. He's the master of holding up that unusual two-headed frog with one hand while he slips the scorpion into our back pocket with the other. And he does that effectively, so effectively, that he draws our attention to the one thing, and then the real danger, he slips into our world, into our lives, unnoticed, unattended. 
Our translations, by the way, haven't helped us in this, to recognize the danger of giving offense, which is what we're talking about. And it's partly because it's moved away in modern translations from translating that word, which is scandalizo, the verb, it means to cause someone to stumble. We'll talk more about that. Literally to place a stumbling block in somebody's path so that they sin and then hopefully, according to the devil, lose their faith and die in that sin and unbelief. Trying to translate that, the King James Version used offend or a form of the word offend, offense, offended 79 times in the New Testament. The translations we tend to use today have opted for different translations like hinder or cause to sin or cause to lose faith. Now understand, they're not necessarily bad translations, but they've taken from our awareness this danger of offense in the biblical sense, causing someone to sin and eventually to lose their Christian faith. Other translations are using words like hindered. You remember last week, for example, when Peter tried to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem to suffer and die? Our translation is the one we use, the ESV, had Jesus saying, you are a hindrance to me. The King James Version translated that, thou art an offense to me. And again, not necessarily a worse translation. In that case, it probably is. But it pulls us away from our awareness of a very real and present danger that we're going to address this morning. Giving offense. Though because of our translation, again, this morning, it may be a challenge to identify our text for this morning, gives us another example of giving offense the danger of that offense, and then we'll talk about the remedy. The text that will follow, that will instruct and guide us this morning, is found in Matthew 18, the first nine verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is God's word. We know the source. We trust the source of these words. And therefore we give them our attention as we seek to have that power of God apply also to our own lives. To that end we pray, sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Our text began with the disciples asking a wholly inappropriate question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The question was inappropriate, was not a good one, was bad because the hearts of the disciples were bad. We know this. We know we're not mischaracterizing this because in part of Jesus' response, unless you turn and become like. In other words, he called out their misdirection, that he called out how they were thinking wrongly. See, at this point in their development, this was before Pentecost, of course, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the disciples still didn't have a clue. They were still very confused about what this kingdom was all about. They were hearing, but not really hearing, Jesus say, my kingdom is not of this world. So they came to understand that as those who got in on the ground floor of this Jesus movement, as those who, look, we gave up a lot. We gave up our livelihood. Some of them left wives, maybe children. We're going to get recorded. We're going to get rewarded rather somehow. And then they seemed to apparently had a discussion about, yeah, well, who's going to be greatest when this kingdom that Jesus is talking about comes to fruition? They said, well, let's have Jesus settle it. There are, in fact, many questions that identify evil in the heart of the person asking. Now, some questions obviously identify just a lack of intelligence or tact. Are you getting fat? Are you intentionally dressing like a prostitute? Are your children always this insufferable? Asking questions can actually provide much more information than can be gained by an answer. Some can be just downright offensive. And there you have it, don't you? The distraction. The distraction that has Satan as its origin. The distraction of being offended. You hear about it constantly in our society. Of, I am offended by that. I don't, I don't believe that most offense today is real. I don't believe that people are really, truly, personally offended by what they hear. It's a game. It's a game that we've been taught to play. Are you really so offended or just have you studied the rules and you realize 
that that person just broke one of the rules. I'm offended. No, you're not. You're not offended because I said a word. You're playing a game. But you see how absorbed we are into this? Ask yourself, wouldn't you be shocked if the word, it's a word that people used to use. It's not a good word. It usually didn't indicate anything good. But it's just a word. No one's calling anybody that. No one's disparaging anyone by that. But we've learned the game. And you don't do that. You broke a rule. I'm offended. Jesus, or Satan rather, loves this stuff because it distracts from that one thing needful. It distracts from important things. We're drawn to this. It's all about this game, so we walk through life careful not to break the rules and, and to look around so that we know the rules of the game that we're supposed to be playing so that we don't offend anyone. That's the world's idea of offense. And you know the great danger of that? It nullifies what the Bible always is talking about when it talks about offense. It's talking always about causing to sin and eventually again causing someone's faith to be weakened or destroyed. It's about sin. Right, says the world. And here's the list of sins that you can't do. Then they have silliness. If, you, if I'm a man with a beard and a deep voice, and you refer to me as he, him, when I've chosen her, she, whatever, you have sinned. Now, we don't want to be labeled as something bad, so we play the game. And the net effect is often that we lose sight of what the Bible says about this, what true offense is, the danger of it, the harm. So our text takes us to that higher plane, doesn't it? Teaching us something about real and imagined offense. Now, the first thing we want to do is remember how the Bible defines this, causing someone to sin, have their faith weakened or destroyed. And if you do that, it will help keep you from drifting into the devil's lane of silliness in all of this, of distraction. It keeps you focused where God wants you to remain focused. So did you catch in our text this whole area or this whole comment on offend, offense? Again, our, our text didn't say offend. It put it this way. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Again, it was easier with the King James Version. I'm not advocating that we change, but the King James Version said, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. This tells us, first of all, Jesus is not playing some silly game here. God in his word doesn't play games. He talks about real, serious things. Anything, everything that weakens faith, that causes someone to sin is serious in the extreme. We need to regard it as such. 
Offense, by God's definition, is all about real sins, as he's defined them. And yet, sin isn't all that complex, is it? Not when you get down to it. In fact, more and more I've come to believe that every sin can be boiled down to those two twin sons of the devil, his two greatest sins, pride and greed. Everything seems to come from that starting point, one or both. In our text, for example, the disciples bringing this, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The source is both pride and greed, isn't it? Pride, because, well, I think I will be greatest. Greed, because I want that acclaim that they thought they would get in this kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. Pick a sin in your life. You can trace it back to pride and or greed. I've not found one that I couldn't. So what's the antidote? The antidote Jesus lays out in our text. He brings that little child, sets him before him, and says, whoever humbles himself. That's that's so powerful, and yet we miss it, because humility is the antidote to both pride and greed. Think of how the opposite is true if you don't have humility. Humility says not, I'm worth it, I deserve it, and you better. Humility says, I'm not worth it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve anything. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Greed, again, the humble heart says, I will be content because I don't deserve more. I deserve far less than my God has given me. I certainly didn't deserve to have him send his son to pay my sin debt. And you see, what then humility does promote is thankfulness. Because when you don't walk through life imagining that God hasn't given you what you deserve, but rather God has immeasurably blessed you beyond your worth or worthiness, Thanksgiving is natural. It flows from that humble heart. So also when we hear Jesus saying, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, how the disciples' hearts must have been smitten, struck down. And by the way, don't notice, or don't miss rather the transition in our text. It makes a transition that is, is important and informative if we let it be. The transition goes from prideful superiority, which is what the disciples were displaying, to humility. Jesus brought the little child and set him in front as an object lesson to offense, the real biblical kind, to temptation. Now, how does this apply to what we're talking about today? Biblical definition of offense is to cause someone to sin even to the point of losing their faith. 
And Jesus is telling them there is no greater sin than the sin of causing someone to lose their Christian faith because faith is what it's all about. If you lose that, you lose all. You lose your place in heaven. When all of this is done, none of the stuff of this life matters. It's all gone. Then you stand before your God and are judged on the basis of one thing, faith in Jesus Christ. And if you, during your life, have caused someone to lose that faith, I can't imagine anything more horrible. And so we ask, applying this to ourselves as we're supposed to, we ask, how is something like this even possible? How can a human being destroy the faith of another? And the answer is by carelessly or knowingly bringing temptation into their lives. Jesus alluded to temptation when he said, Woe to the world! For temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations will come. Necessary in the sense of it's going to happen. But then he adds, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. That's how offense, true biblical offense is given. No human being is an island. No human being is an independent operator. Every one of us is part of a group or family, a literal family, a church family, a work family, whatever. You're part of a living organism. And everything that we do has an effect, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, admit it or not. Everything we do, others see, and it has an effect on them. One part doesn't get to say, well, I'm just going to do this, but I don't want anybody else to do it. I don't even want them to see that, and it's not going to have an effect. Well, let's use an analogy. Rupture a disc in your back. You think the rest of the body is going to say, no big deal, or you think it's going to pay attention. Break a bone in your arm or a rib. You think the body's going to say, don't worry about it, we've got others just like it. The effect is profound and obvious, even if we don't want to acknowledge it. Others see what we do. Others hear what we say. Others see our example. And then the question is, the question we want to ask of ourselves is, do my words, do my actions build them up or tear them down? Am I tempting others to sin? Am I giving a bad example? Do others hear how I talk? And are they tempted to use the language I use? Do others see how I use my time and my money unwisely? This takes honesty, doesn't it? It also takes that humility we talked about to humbly set aside our own pride that wants to justify everything we do because it's us, and to acknowledge our own sin, real sin, the sin of giving offense to others by 
weakening their Christian faith, putting in peril their eternal future. But something that's not necessary. Certainly not. Sin is never necessary. So what do we do about it? First, we acknowledge the sin in our lives. Then we repent of it. And then we flee for refuge to God's infinite mercy. Jesus didn't come to earth to play games. He came to suffer and die for real, ugly sins. Your sins, my sins. He came to pay the penalty for everything that we did wrong. So don't stop with the guilt. Don't leave here this morning with this guilt, this burden of I am a sinner and I am unlovable because your sin isn't greater than Jesus' love for you. Your sin isn't greater than Jesus' sin payment. He came and paid also for that sin, for your poor example, for your bad witness for the offense that you have given your friends, your family, your co-workers. And so when you acknowledge the sin, repent of it, then let your heart be filled with the joy and the relief, the true comfort of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ for that sin too. Everything I've done wrong, my poor example, all the bad things, Jesus paid for that. It's gone. Through faith in him, you stand holy and perfect. How can that be? Since I I know and I'm filled with guilt. Did you hear our confession? And God has placed on him the guilt of us all. Your guilt he carried also to the cross. Not just the payment for your sin, but your guilt. He was guilty there before God in your place, in your stead. Gone. Forgiven. As sin is real, so is the forgiveness that's yours through faith in Jesus. He's erased your debt. He's drowned it in the depths of the sea. So what we do going forward is we struggle humbly to walk always in harmony with God's will, not in an attempt to make up for, not in an attempt to pay part of our sin debt or all of it, but to thank Him with our lives. To recognize, to look with eyes of wisdom and see a human soul that I can endanger by my actions, by my words, by my example. And that new man in us longs to walk in harmony with God's will. Let your heart be filled this morning with joy, comfort, relief, and resolve that you will not bring offense into the hearts or lives of anyone. Amen.